Welcome to the Recovering Academic Podcast. I'm Amanda, and I left academia about one year ago to become a scientific editor for grants and manuscripts and an editorial manager for a science website. I'm Ian, and I've recently left academia to move into a science communication, editing, and publishing career. And I'm Dr. PMS. I've left academia about two years ago to work as a biotech salesperson, and I'm still in recovery. We're in various phases of transitioning out of academia, and we'll share insights, advice, and problems we encounter at each stage. Hello, everybody. Um, Welcome to the Recovering Academic podcast um, in our third season, and uh, we're with a guest tonight. We're with Dr. Kristen Witte, um, who now, um, after our PhD, or after their PhD, works at the Museum of Science and Industry. Um, Kristen Witte has a background in cell biology, aka pipetting, <laughs> and having enjoyed the literature search and storytelling aspects of their PhD, Kristen uh, now spends their time developing um, time in exhibit development at the Museum of Science and Industry, where they discover and define compelling and fascinating stories that resonate with the museum's diverse audience. Um, speaking of diversity, Kristen identifies on the non-binary side of the gender galaxy and uses they/them pronouns. So they are committed to increasing the visibility of queer science community and to deconstructing systems that result in the diminution of the queer experience in science and science-adjacent fields. And that's one reason we think Kristen would be a fantastic guest on the Recovering Academic. So Kristen, welcome to um, to the program. Yes, welcome. Hi. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to uh, talk with you all. Um, I would say that listening to this podcast was really valuable and really beneficial um, as I navigated from being a PhD student um, and steeped in science into the, the museum world. So I'm excited to be here. And we're excited to have you. Yeah, we're really excited. <laughs> Great. Sorry. I've always been a big fan of the Museum of Science and Industry, so I'm kind of like, oh, right. yeah, you yeah. Have you there? been before? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, MSI is very cool. Like, if you have a chance to go, I highly mm-hmm. recommend it. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's no, that's it's just... very big too, so you'll. It's on my to-do list now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, my friend yeah. Okay. Um, takes her daughter there. Um, about like she said, like every weekend during the winter. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's a yeah. It's definitely a really good place to go. There is, um, it, it's a very large place. Um, I think it's something like fourteen acres worth wow. of oh, exhibits Jesus. Um, and experiences. So it is a really large place. And if you can get through it all in one day, then I applaud you. Um, <laughs> I have not <laughs> gotten through all of it even still, and I work there, um, and there are experiences, even I think just yesterday in a meeting, um, my, I'm going to be on a new project coming up in 2019, and I was like, I haven't even done that experience. I don't know what it entails or what <laughs> How long uh, have so you been was- working there? Uh, so I've been at the museum for a little over three months. I started right at the beginning of June. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, you're brand new. Brand new. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I am, I am brand new. Um, like I said, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's awesome. So, thank you. Yeah. And it was, um, I had 
I'll just sort of like start to dive into a little bit of like how I ended up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I graduated um, from the University of Chicago in June of 2017. Okay. So almost a year to the day from when mm-hmm. I started at the museum from mm-hmm. leaving uh, leaving PhD school. Um, and so that ex- so that year was my transition period, and um, it was probably one of the most valuable times of my life as it provided an opportunity to really start doing a lot of self-reflection and a lot of self-exploration um, of the mm-hmm. things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what is true for a lot of people, um, especially maybe in our, <clears throat> I almost think about it as like generations of scientists or maybe older generation of scientists who we, you know, you come into school and you are like, I am going to have a great grad school experience and then I'm going to get a postdoc and then I'm going to get a job as an academic professor and I'm going to have a lab. And, and that's just sort of the narrative that, mm-hmm. yes, um, yes, that was, so. yeah, that, that just existed. Um, and so, yeah, so during the majority of my PhD, I, I also thought that narrative, though I was cognizant of trying to, uh, interrogate whether that was something that I really wanted to do. Um, and what what actually ended up happening is that basically every time, or basically every year, as I was thinking about like where I would want to do my my postdoc, um, those postdocs moved further and further away from biology, until by like my fourth or fifth year, I was looking at labs that pretty much had nothing to do with anything that I. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so for me, and that's fine. That's really good for a scientist, you know, really increasing your 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 breadth of, mm-hmm. of what you do. And for me, it was more of a calling card of like, oh, I don't want to actually stay here. I'm looking for reasons to keep me here. It was sort of like a like running away from something rather than like running toward something. Um, yeah. So I then, it was about probably nine months before I graduated that I really then committed to, I am not going to pursue an academic uh, career and um, and wanted to look into other things. And how did that go over with your PI? Or did you not tell him, her, them at the time? Uh, so I had, um, you know, I I had told him that that was probably what the path was going to be. Um, and I I think that if I recall off the top of my head, I don't know if I was maybe explicit enough with just blanketly saying, I don't want to do this. Um, like, I want to do something else. And and I probably was maybe a little wishy-washy because I didn't, didn't know exactly how he was going to respond. So... And then that's pretty, pretty, that d- didn't go over very well. Then later when I was like, I don't, when maybe three months before I graduated, I was like, I'm not going for a postdoc. And he was like, but you are really good at science. Like you have an aptitude and you should do it. And I said, I just don't want to though. It's just not where I want to go. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a, there were ways that I could have been much more communicative about it that I wish that I had been. Yeah, but it's tough. It's not easy because even if you are 100% sure that you don't want to be there, uh, it's already hard 
to mm-hmm. let because you have this feeling that you're letting people down, that you're not doing what it expected of you to do. It's kind of like disappointing your parents, yeah, you know. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Like telling my PI that I wasn't gonna go into um, that I wasn't gonna stay in science um, or stay in academia was a little bit like disappointing my dad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. So that is already hard. And then when you you're so fresh and you still I mean, you had an idea. It, it was a process, you know, as you were saying, like each year you were like running further further away, but I feel like that time it it, it you didn't have the clearance in in your head um to be clear with him, you know, because how can you be clear with someone else if you don't even know what you're thinking? Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree, and I, um, I like the points um, that both Clady and Amanda brought up about sort of the the expectation, um, yeah, the expectations in science, um, and maybe not living up to those expectations. Um, I, I also had, um, I'm gonna kind of steer the the conversation in a little bit different direction. There were similar ways that like that having certain expectations of basically who is a scientist um, also provided, um, also created some some conflict for myself. Um, specifically, uh, as um, as Ian said, like I, I identify as a, as a non-binary person. Mm-hmm. And in science, that almost does not exist. I mean, there are there are some out gay people, and I was definitely an out gay person. But the um, the repre- the gender representation in science really is that of of binary, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. uh, it is men and it is women. Um, and what was additionally sort of in conflict while I was moving through my PhD was was this identity as a scientist and this identity that was apparently a non-binary person, but was something that I didn't even know existed. Um, uh, and by that, I mean, I internally, in my like deep crevices of my mind, knew that I was not a gendered woman. Mm-hmm. And I only knew that there was being a cisgendered woman or there was being a transgendered man. And I didn't like a transgendered man either so then I must have been a cisgendered woman um and so there was there was a lot of conflict then of what's going on with even my person with (laughs) moving through moving through my PhD as a scientist um and then it wasn't until really those like last like nine months that I was like I'm not going to continue in academia that then these like wonderings and like uh these wonderings of what my gender identity really is finally started to to burble and gurgle to the surface um and so that that transition time then that that year between when i was a phd student student and when i started my job at the museum of science and industry not only was i exploring you know things that i wanted to career-wise i was also exploring things about myself that i didn't necessarily have the bandwidth or the safety maybe even to explore mm-hmm. while I was in science. Um, I was going to ask about that precise question. Like, was it that 
you were so focused on science and your PhD that it didn't allow you to explore it or because it didn't feel safe to do so in academia or maybe both even, right? Yeah, yeah, I would I would definitely say both and. Um, and I think that that is, that's something that is, that is trying to be remedied now. And there's a lot of, of driving like grassroots uh, mm-hmm. organizations that are really trying to increase the representation of um, gay, lesbian, uh, trans, queer, gender non-binary, gender non-conforming people in science, that we are there and that, um, that we have perspective to bring to science that's really valuable and it also like so it kind of sounds like also like the represent like the lack of representation and lack of being able to form an an identity as a scientist and as a non-binary person also was kind of tied up in your whole transition as well like once you were able to let go of the science scientist part you were able to explore this other part i mean at least that's what it sounds like to me i don't want to you know say this is how it was but that's kind of how it sounds yeah, I think that that I think that is what happened for me was that once I was able to sort of release my identity, really, I will say release my identity as a scientist, mm-hmm. um, or at least let go yeah, of so much hanging on it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, just loosen it up, allow a little bit more flexibility. That then it allowed space for the for. for understanding these these other really salient parts of myself that just didn't have have space before yeah i mean for different reasons but obviously um i I can understand how how, like being in academia and doing a phd and then like i I mean doing a postdoc is it can be really stifling for you know like shaking loose exploration and curiosity of about you know things besides science and you know, you're focused on your research and you're trying to figure out problems and solve, you know, like the great mysteries of nature. But <laughs> like in that, you just tend to like lose all sense of, you know, exploring yourself and being curious about who you are as a human being in that world. Because, you know, we're sort of cultured to say like, oh, it's all about the results and all about the research and all about the science. And like, yeah. it doesn't matter who you are if you're doing, you know, if you're following the scientific method and trying be creative and you know solve you know the problems that nature presents to us um, yeah but on the other hand there is also the 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 expectation that if you are a female professor and mm-hmm. there is going to be a party and then you're going to bring a plus one uh you need to bring your husband or your boyfriend you know mm-hmm. so it's it's not kind of like okay a plus one and 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 it's not mm-hmm. Yeah, we, there are some places um, that are a little bit more open, and I feel like it's getting better, it's improving, mm-hmm. but still, the the expectation is that. So, uh, I'm not saying that is a thing that is just academic-wise, it's, it's improving, there's this expectation you know, everywhere, but I guess that uh, it's one more layer of complexity in in Christine's case. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also I was thinking, like, as you were yeah. talking, that academia does tend to be, or tend to identify as being very liberal, like the ivory tower and all that, but at the same mm. time it does strike me as kind of socially conservative, like, 
Um, yep. Not that this is on the same <clears throat> level as anything, but um, when I was pregnant with my second son, um, I went, like, I was applying for jobs and I was going on it, like, I got called for a job interview and they wanted to do a Skype interview with me first before I went for the campus visit. And um, one of the, like, there were two female professors in our department. And one of them pulled me aside and was like, look, what you need to do is you need to make sure that you have your laptop up here so that way, mm. they, and I was 30 weeks pregnant at the time, so there was no hiding it. So she was like, you need to make sure you have your laptop up here and then that way they'll see you from your chest up and you'll be fine. And I was like, <laughs> I can't hide a child. Yeah. But, like, mm-hmm. that was the prevailing, and this was, you know, four years ago. So that was the prevailing logic then. So, I mean, not on the same side, but, like, that same sort of thing of kind of having that social conservatism. Yeah. I Yeah, I would, I really like that, that phrase that you use, this sort of social conservatism, um, that there are, there are definitely heteronormative um, practices within within science. You know, the the expectation that if one is to bring a partner, then that partner is definitively of the opposite sex and is um, perf- performing gender in the way that we expect it to. Um, and and additionally, um, I think one thing that I have toyed with a bit in my head and the way that I think about it is is how we as scientists do focus on on our on our objectivity um, and our logic and our 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 ways of you know just being obsessed with the science and sort of using that as as basically a foil to feel as though we rise above these sort of social constructs um, and the mm-hmm. and the cultural yes. um, implications that exist outside of the walls of academia. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. And so we sort of create in, we sort of create in of our in of ourselves that like, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing measurements all day, and I know this, and I'm above the the issues of race and gender and class that are pervasive outside of these walls. But then by not by not acknowledging those um, those social constructs, it creates it it effectively creates erasure, and it makes it even more difficult for people who identify you know as as a woman or identify um as a person of color or 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 are a person of color um to then speak up when they are experiencing marginalization because it theoretically doesn't exist right it's a very toxic thing that everything is like if you do good enough work that it doesn't matter because you'll rise yes like in with the interview thing she the professor who pulled me aside was just like it's not a, like she I can't remember exactly how she phrased it but it was exactly like that like it shouldn't matter but this mm. is just you know this is just how it is and it's fine like it wasn't supposed to bother me because obviously my science and everything is a you know is above all this and this was just kind of a superfluous detail that I was supposed to hide about myself mm-hmm. yeah. and yeah and I think there's a dual side of like another side of this is you know the science is all important and i don't care what your background is or who you are and that can become another form of just erasing mm-hmm. identity from mm-hmm. people right yeah. where you know i i mean i can't look cisgendered white dude speaking so a grain of salt white 
uh, but um, just like it seems to me like you know like that aspect of it was like well I mean and so like in a sense like I'm just like I don't think about identity because like well I am the default right I am the template mm-hmm. and like I don't have to think about it I don't have to like it's like I don't care who you are like do science like get to work I, I you know like pipette um, yeah like yeah. why does it matter and like I just you know like, I mean to this day like look I'm still largely blind to those things right and it's like i can just say like well why do you like doesn't matter just do science right mm-hmm. um but like no like you know one there's like the external expectation that on people like on women on lgbt people on people of color that society is projected onto them and foisted onto them and then they also have their own identities that are important to bring and their own perspectives that you know it's like no it's not just do science it's like no like our human perspective is actually important and matters. And guess what? You should think about how your, pers- like my perspective, and as I'm speaking about myself, like is unique and different too, right? And like not just like, well, this is how it is. Like this is the perspective and the only one. Like no, it's one of many. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I would, I would, I would add on to that. Like there's been, speaking of being a scientist um (laughs) there has been so there's been just innumerable amounts of research that highlight how much better work is done when diverse voices are in the room and Mm -hmm. it and so that right there is is should Mm -hmm. should even provide enough provide enough like impetus for scientists to want to engage in these in these diversity questions basically of like are we bringing diverse voices to the table rather than as as ian said just like the perspective or the opinion mm-hmm. or the impact factor in the number of 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 publications blah blah right. blah right right and right. i should say like this is separate from the idea of scientific consensus where people of diverse backgrounds and you know all across the world do the science and like they all converge on a similar picture of the world like that's a slightly different thing that we're talking than we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's so a like thing. these yeah. things get completed so easily and quickly. And like the other thing I just want to say is like, I mean, I feel like it's, this is something I think about a lot. It's like, how do you awake curiosity? Like mm. in this case, we're talking about the scientific community about, and like, this is relevant to your work at the museum. I'm sure that you'll speak to in just a second, but like yeah. <laughs> um, awaken curiosity is how you kind of treat this problem. I think when like, you know, they do the saying just like, oh, draw a scientist. What does a scientist look like? You ask that question to like kids and they do the, you know, white male and then like, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, like the first, like the default answer to that question is like, what does a scientist look like? The default answer should be, I don't know. Let's go mm-hmm. find some scientists and see like, you know, what they're doing and where and like, you know, unfortunately, like, it's going to be very hard to pin down a definitive answer to that because you'll find scientists in all over the world doing all sorts of different things from all different perspectives and backgrounds and gender identity. And, you know, Oh, well, I guess they're people, right? You know, scientists are people. It would be good if we get to the point where people would draw just a person wearing proper PPE. Or or that. (laughs) I was going to say like just that generic gray alien <laughs> that like you, know, <laughs> like I, you know it sort of looks like this but like eh, but with a lab coat you know you can project a lot of like things yeah, on the- and safety <laughs> glasses 
glasses and gloves. And probably like uh, purple gloves yeah, because yeah, now yeah. every everybody that uh, when you see like uh, advertisement mm -hmm. there that people are pipetting or doing whatever they're always wearing purple gloves. So I just yeah. heard that like they make gloves in all different colors. Like one of the labs that I manage buys shadow black nitrile. Oh, wow. I've cool. seen those. They are pretty cool looking. But they're more expensive, <laughs> the black ones. That's why none of the labs yeah, I worked yeah, in ever had like, We always got like, the, so... the cheapest nitrile gloves we could buy, which were always like, the purple mm -hmm. ones. Yeah, the purple ones, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part that's true. But like, I, I found a supplier of the black nitrile ones who's almost almost the same price as the purple ones <laughs> per case. Wow. So, wow. That, like, that, and like, I mean, yeah. And it's not appropriate for the podcast story, but like, we did find a supplier who was willing to sell them like, at almost the cheapest price possible, like for the is the same as the purple ones. Now I sort of want um, a box. I don't use. I don't need PPE anymore. But now I sort of want a box of Shadow Black. <laughs> when, we're off, when we're off air, I will tell you the supplier, and you can buy a case. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're useful as a parent. Put it in the show one. notes because maybe people want to buy. You know, you sometimes you don't need to yeah. work in the lab, but it's useful to have a box of gloves in your house. Hey, poopy diapers, sure. man. Sure. So getting back to the interviews <laughs> yeah. and curiosity, I so yeah. I mean you talked a little bit about your year of transition um, and getting to the Museum of Science and Industry. I mean I guess I, I still you still haven't quite told us how you landed there and no. like you're yeah. in your transition year off. Like what were you doing besides searching for a job? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and like, how was that transition? I mean, like I, how was it? Like the, the, the finding yourself, what did you do? Did you look for help? Did you travel yeah. the um, Yeah, <laughs> a actually, you know what? All of the above, literally. <laughs> right. That's excellent. <laughs> so I, yeah, that I spent, so that one year, I kind of think about it as, you know, the first six months uh, and then the second six months. And the first six months, I really actively put effort into making sure it was not pressured. I was like, I just really want to give myself time to figure out where I am going, what I am doing. Um, I mean, as as we've already been talking about, um, doing a PhD is really taxing. It's really like mm -hmm. emotionally, mentally difficult. Um, and there are um, there are a lot of identities since we're on mm -hmm. that track. Um, there are a lot of identities that we we establish and create about ourselves in that time. Um, and that then there is much, there is a lot of value in taking time after you leave school to explore who you are outside of academic science. Um, and so, yeah, so that first six months, I really just did some exploring. Um, I, you know, I dabbled in a lot of different things. Um, I had done a decent amount of uh, coding intensive work during my PhD. So, mm -hmm dabbled a little bit in sort of data science. Um, and I ended up, um, my wife and I, we took a trip. Um, we traveled the world a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. We visited her family in Ireland, and we had a layover in London. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> gorgeous. Ireland is beautiful. It's I'd love to go really to beautiful. I highly recommend that people go there. Um, and so we had a layover in London, and the museums in London are free. So you can just walk in whenever, and it's great. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. And so, yeah, it's really awesome. 
And we went to the British Museum for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time that we were there, they had this really incredible exhibit about how how life and death basically inspire different cultures. Um, and so that exhibit was really moving to me because it sort of got at um, how people can create meaningful connections um, and a sense of belonging with each other. Um, and it got me interested in it. And it got like everybody in that room interested in it. And so what I realized what I was that what I was really interested in were ways to create um, feelings of belonging through creating meaningful experiences. Mm -hmm. And a museum sounds like a great way to do that where a lot of um, a lot of what we're driving to do is to inspire people and connect with them emotionally so that they um, can basically, again, like explore more about themselves and also create a sense of community with mm -hmm. each other. Um, so after we got back from that trip, it was right about the, that was like the end of that, that first six months. Um, so I did a lot of time basically then researching, uh, specifically exhibit development, um, which is really the, the, the group is responsible for creating all of the exhibits that you see in museums. Um, mm -hmm. and so I figured out like what it entails, what skills are valuable and basically how to break into that world. And so I realized um, after researching, I needed to really do three main things. Um, the first one, unsurprisingly, is you have to network. Um, <laughs> and you have to people who are in the museum world. Um, the other thing is that you definitely have to have experience um, and you have to get involved in like museums or even informal uh, learning um, mm -hmm. uh, environments. And finally, uh, I realized that I needed to start showcasing my writing. And so um, in exhibit development, you have to be a, a pretty good writer um, because every document you create is read by a really diverse set of people. And you need to be able to both succinctly articulate the really salient points about a topic while also creating um, feelings of sort of inspiration and impactfulness and making like your colleagues be like, yes, we have to do an exhibit about this. This is so important. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's kind of like a grant writing, you're yeah, selling, you, you, you need to sell your, your research in the grant and now you have to sell your exhibit. Right. And yeah. I imagine too, that like an exhibit starts with a story you want to tell and you have to write that and like, then it leaps off the page into like three dimensions um, right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Like trying to identify, you know, what what the story wants to be or, or even as the story emerges, um, that is a really it's a really interesting thing to try to capture. Um, and it's something that I am learning a lot about. Um, and I actually like just had a random conversation with my boss like two days ago about. So how did you know that we needed to do this next? And she was like, I don't know. Just experience and sort of reading the reading the tea leaves is what she said reading the tea leaves of the people in the room and like what was what was landing on them like emotionally and what wasn't uh so anyway yeah like, so I, I don't started, know yeah 
Yeah. Oh, okay. go ahead. No, I was just gonna say like, I mean, it's it's this weird instinct like you sort of just know when you found the crux of something, yeah. right? That humans have like I don't know what you call it exactly. Just you know, like yeah. it seems extrasensory, but it's uh, it's obviously not. It's just yeah. Know, like humans have this skill of like that's it, we got it. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. It is pretty cool. Um, yeah. So I started. So I started networking, and um, I utilized um, versatile. PhD. You guys know what? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So I had found a person named um, Perry Roth Johnson who posted a testimony on there where he described his journey from uh, PhD to exhibit development at the uh, Cal uh, uh, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just found him on LinkedIn um, and I told him how his testimony was really meaningful with meaningful to me and how I just kind of wanted to talk to him about what it was like for him. And so we had um, a back and forth email conversation that was really valuable. He steered me in a a couple of really good directions to get more comfortable with um, just the language of informal science education and things like that. And that was really, really, really valuable. And then so at the same time, I also had figured out that I had several like friends of friends who work at another museum in Chicago. it's the Field Museum. It's the Natural History Museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very yeah. under the ground. Yeah, Only hipsters it's know a about very, it. Very yes. hipster. You, like, you wouldn't know about yes. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I managed to then. Um, so I got introductions through friends of friends, and then finagled some coffee dates with the mm-hmm. those people who work at the Field Museum, and then um, and then finally uh, the other piece of of networking that I, I really did was. Um, my now boss, um, she was giving a seminar at the University of Chicago. Uh, this was like in January. Oh yeah, January of just this year. Um, and as an alumni, I could still go to those seminars. And the seminar is basically about a museum career. Uh, and so I went and then I spoke with her after her seminar for probably about 30 minutes or so. Um, just introduced myself and we kind of talked about, you know, literally how to move from academia because she also has a PhD and transitioned out uh, like 20 years ago. Um, and then, and then over the next few months, I just continued to cultivate a relationship with her. And that, that piece of networking was really invaluable in actually getting the position that I have now at MSI. And then, so in addition to, um, uh, that that networking and things, I, I was also volunteering. There's a lot of value in, I think, doing work for free mm-hmm. um, and just kind of showcasing what you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I was volunteering at, at the Museum of Science and Industry. Um, and then I also volunteered with an organization called the Chicago Consortium Science and Technology, uh, C2ST. Uh, I don't know. Have you, have you heard of it, Ian, at all? I've heard of it, yes. Okay. Um, yes, I've heard of it. I know very very little about it as i know yeah. very little about most things in chicago social things in chicago still so i'm still very new to the city yeah well this might be something that you'd be interested in so they mm-hmm. are they're a nonprofit group um that puts on public discussions forums um and speaking events uh with scientists with the aim of basically increasing the public awareness of science mm-hmm. and so i started helping out at their events um like they will have a speakeasy night um, where a local scientist goes to a bar and gives a talk. And so I would go to those events and help out, and then I would I would write a blog post about the event. And so also by volunteering, specifically with them, I was 
I was able to continue meeting a lot of people um, and also was starting to increase, again, my experience with informal science education spaces and, and connecting with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And then so on top of all that, I was applying to jobs. <laughs> wow. Um, so, you know, you weren't busy or anything right. there. No, like, not busy. Were you? Yeah, but she's kind of like the poster child of transitioning. Oh, you know, yeah. she did. She did everything. She took a break. She found herself. She did the networking, and and then it 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 seems like I don't know. Again, always when we tell a narrative, it seems easy and it seems really straightforward. But in your case, it really seemed like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two things. Just. Totally fine. I use they, them pronouns, and that's that's okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, the narrative, it, I agree. It always seems straightforward, and that's what I always felt like when I was listening to, to this podcast. I was like, how are all these people doing this? I don't understand. Because <laughs> um, like, when you're in it, you're just like, I, there, there's no end. I don't see how I'm going to get out of this, um, and you just keep going, I guess. You right. use that um, that resilience you built up as a PhD student to just be like, I don't know how I'm going to survive this PhD and I'm going to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I was applying to jobs. And the interesting thing, and just so people know who maybe are interested in, in museum careers, um, is that they they are hard to get and because there's just not very mm-hmm. many of them. Mm-hmm. So I was applying, I spent about six months applying and I really only applied to probably like 15 jobs in six months which really isn't that many um and mm-hmm. and I ended up getting one um which was which is great but that's that was another hard part was that I was like looking for something not even necessarily specific but just like that whole field is just there's just not a lot yeah. Yeah. so I was gonna ask in museum yeah. or she did her masters in museum studies i believe and she was saying the same thing that there's just Mm -hmm. not that many like you and people who get them like get a job in museums they hold on to them until they retire Mm -hmm. yes that is also something i've noticed um a lot of my colleagues that I work with at the museum all have been there for five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. I feel it's very rare that I ever meet somebody who is like, oh no, I just started like last week or like last month um, or last year. <laughs> so that's a very interesting experience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was gonna ask like, because the museum jobs are rare, were you limiting yourself to local-ish museums or were you applying to museums like, you know, world over or like maybe countrywide? No. Yeah. So I was, I was only looking in Chicago, um, at the time, my, my Mm -hmm. wife and I, we, at least for the moment, we are, we are based here. Um, -hmm. you know, that might change in the future, but for, in the time that I was applying, that was, we, we were going to be here. Mm -hmm. So good thing. There's a lot of museums here. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I can't even imagine what that would be like in another city. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, where I was, my postdoc at Dartmouth, there's the Montshire Museum of Science, mm-hmm. which is a very small town science museum. But mm-hmm. um, there are a few um, PhDs from Dartmouth who ended up getting jobs there. It's great. Uh, so 
Yeah, so like, you know, even if it's a small science museum, like potentially there are job openings. And if you're willing to move to, you know, small town area that has a science museum, which is surprising in itself that a place like that has a science museum. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, so, you know, sometimes like, you know, like if you are geographically limited, like that happens to people in careers and transitions. So it's good to point that out, I guess. Yes. Um, yes. That. Yeah, like, you know, you do what works for you, like, in mm-hmm. whatever your situation is. Yeah, and that was a very successful story in mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. 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 Um, so I have a question because we were talking about this it. a little bit before the, we started recording. Um, but you just recently started twi- being on Twitter. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> yes. How did you find out about us? Because <laughs> How like, did... We're on Twitter, and I guess a little bit on Facebook, but mo- mostly Twitter. I mean, that's how I met both Clady and Ian. Right. Mm, yeah. Yes. Okay. So, to be totally honest, I've been trying to recall how I found this podcast <laughs> since we start since we talked about that before we started recording. Oh, I'm sorry. Could- no, that's total. It's just really funny because I can't remember exactly. I I. Knowing myself, what I probably was doing was um, probably probably feeling just a little bit um, like probably just a little bit low in my like transition time of just like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing um, and was just like Googling, like if anyone had like a similar experience, um, which many people do. That's why you have a podcast. And that's why there's other podcasts about that. Um, And I think that that's probably how it happened. Like I was just kind of looking for um, other other people who had similar experiences as me that I could connect with, even if that was just you know through through headphones once a week. Um, Yeah, that's how I found it. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yes, and I'm glad that uh, you decided to join Twitter after yeah. all. Oh, yes, so since right. you just started, we need everybody who follows us or follows mm. one of us to follow Kristen. So what is your Twitter handle? We'll repeat uh, it at the end, so we're good. Right, uh, right. Yeah. They're you at know. Kristen Witte, W-I-T-T-E, on yes. Twitter. Yes, that is my and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Kristen with a K. Yes. Yeah. So everybody needs to follow her because then you have followers <laughs> and you have lots of people to interact with because that's what makes Twitter fun is being able to interact with people. Yes. I, the yes. interactive aspect is a lot more fun. I agree. That's the good thing about Twitter. And jokes. And jokes. And like yeah. very good like brief writing about things in people's tweets sometimes. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So I guess we'll get to the last couple of questions because mm-hmm. um, and wrap up. So, I mean, because I am curious about like you're three months into your job at MSI. Mm-hmm. And like, what are the biggest challenges that, you know, you face in your position right now? Like, you know, how are you feeling about, you know, the challenges in meeting them of your current job? Yeah. Um, so my, I think the biggest challenge that I faced um, has to do a lot with uh, shifting priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, things, uh, things will just kind of move a bit faster than they moved in, in PhD. So when I, so like, for example, a lot of my work right now, um, in exhibits is really all, all at the beginning stage. 
process of, of creating an exhibit. And so during that time, we're really trying to figure out, as, as we've kind of alluded to, we're really trying to figure out what, what is the story, what, what resonates with the audience, what are the entry points emotionally for people about, about this topic. Um, and so as we're sort of figuring that out and as the story you know, emerges, uh, we can basically shift total direction of what we thought we were going to do. So I might be researching something and going really far down the rabbit hole. And then we have a meeting and we realize that uh, this totally other direction is a better way to think about it and is a better, um, in, is a, is just a more meaningful way, I guess, to mm -hmm. engage with the topic. And so the research that I did was still valuable, but now I'm going to move into like a different now I'm going to dive into this totally unresearched topic that I never thought about before and, and figure out how that fits into the, the upcoming exhibit. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, it's kind of like basic research. You know, you do exactly. follow a rabbit hole and you put it on a shelf for a while and you never know when yep. it's going to become relevant again because that research you did that you got shifted <laughs> off of might become relevant all of a sudden later on. You're like, oh, I know that. I got that. I did that years ago. <laughs> right. Uh, whatever. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that, I agree with you about the faster pace of life outside of academia. Um, yeah. It's, there's, yeah, completely agree. Um, and, I mean, you sound a lot more happy professionally, but mm -hmm. is that actually the case? Like, you're feeling a lot better, you know, outside of academia now that you yes. have, you know, your, um, your role at MSI that you're pretty happy about and excited about doing? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm I am absolutely more happy. So the job that I have now is basically mm -hmm. all the things that I love doing in my PhD, plus all of the things that I really valued, um, but just didn't, I mean, didn't have the time or or have an outlet for pursuing um, during my during my PhD. Like, I even when I was I was doing my research, I really loved learning about different different avenues of research, and I especially enjoyed exploring how I could apply uh, principles from this like, wide swath of research fields to the, my questions that I was, I was pursuing. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, in exhibit development, we really pull ideas and information from far and wide and try to identify these sort of unifying themes that resonate with our guests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's Probably like, awesome. Really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's probably, yeah. That's probably a lot of <laughs> listening too, right? Just like trying yes. to hear what the audience will yes. resonate with the audience well. And, and I'm like, and now I'm kind of like, now I want to switch fields. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can be the museum editor. Yeah, you yes, can be the museum editor, right? Remotely. I'm yeah. sure you could fit into one of the many departments that I don't fully know what they do, but <laughs> I'm still learning. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So. All right. So our final question we ask everybody um, that's mandatory is like, what would you tell your younger self? And younger, you can define what that means for you <laughs> um, and what you would tell yourself. Yeah, you could go yes. anywhere from like babyhood onto you yesterday. Yes. Oh. Quite. Wow. <laughs> yes. Okay. I, would, I yeah. have I have two ideas, and I think that they are speaking to. The person I was in in school, um, as well as probably the thing I tell myself like every day. Um, so the person I was ten minutes ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the first thing is, I think it's just really 
valuable to continue cult to to continue cultivating your identities and like who you are mm-hmm. beyond the culture of academic science. Mm-hmm. Not only will it make you a better scientist because you're sort of you're bringing in ideas that you hear from like other other experiences, um, but it also will basically help grease the wheels if you decide that leaving academia is the best choice for you. It'll help you sort of uh, communicate with other people. You'll start having connections with other people. Um, and just in the long run, it'll make you a, a more a more emotionally um, stable person as you are pursuing <laughs> your PhD. Um, and then I think the other thing is that um, uh, just be patient and be compassionate with yourself. Like people who are you know, in, in your PhD or leaving your PhD or even me now or everybody here now, like you have spent a really long time sort of being a certain way. And so in transitioning out of academia, um, just expands who you are and, and it widens who you are. And it just takes a little bit of time to figure out what that person looks like now. That's really good advice. No. I like that. Yeah. Good. I like that too. Yeah. Um, thank you yes okay so on that note uh, i think we'll close out this episode of the recovering academic so um thanks to dr Kristen witty for joining us um they are a um exhibit developer at the museum of science and industry located in chicago illinois on the south side of downtown um definitely visit the museum it's awesome and you'll get to see one of Kristen's exhibits that's (laughs) out on the floor, probably. Um, Yeah, thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really great. Yes, all right. Thank you very much, and we will see you all next time on the Recovering Academic Podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Recovering Academic Podcast. Our music is from bensound.com under a Creative Commons license. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps other people find out about us. You can tweet the show at RecoveringAcad. You can also find all of the hosts on Twitter. I'm at LadyScientist. I'm at Dr. Underscore PMS. And I'm at IH Street. We're also on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash recovering academic podcast you can find all of our episodes and subscribe to our newsletter on our website at recoveringacademic.net and don't forget there is sunshine outside the ivory tower <laughs>